George was this funny little kid, really chatty. He did whatever he wanted all the time, really weird and quirky. He used to approach fellow students and try and sell them his home-built computers. He made his own motorized scooter and would ride around our little town from house to house, fixing people's computers. Though we don't actually know what he did. We had him over one day to fix our computer, but he didn't fix our computer. He definitely messed it up. Here's another quote about George. I'm pretty sure he had an ad in the town paper. He came over to our house one afternoon when our computer had been acting particularly fussy. He babbled for a bit about what was wrong with it. And I remember being so intrigued by his knowledge that I just sat there and watched him work. The 14 year old Hotz proceeded to tamper with our computer for the next couple of hours. When he finished, he received a pretty hefty compensation, I believe around $70, and scooted down our street on his way. The problem with our new computer, whatever it was worsened by his visit. Eventually, we had to trade it in for a new one, but I never blamed him. He was just too damn adorable. So our episode today is about George Hotz, one of the most famous hackers in the world and a really fascinating entrepreneur. I've met George a few times and really enjoyed spending time with him. And he's done, he's touched so many different things, big tech, the hacking community. He's at the center of the AI boom right now because of the latest company that he's building. He's worked in self-driving cars and met Elon Musk. And he's just a fascinating character. I think he's also one of the few people that's been on Lex Friedman three times. So there's nine hours of this guy talking that I listened to in preparation for this episode. He's just such a fascinating character. He keeps a list on his personal website of companies that have sued him and recommends that you never buy products from those companies. And we'll go into those lawsuits in, in a little bit. He's also almost worked with Elon multiple times, but never quite made it work, which is very interesting. And then he's obviously, he really talented technical mind. He's built really impressive technologies as we'll go into, but he's never been one to really game the financial markets and play the fundraising game ultra effectively and take companies public like so many other people in his position might be tempted to. And so I think that really speaks to his character and who he is as a person. And that's what I really want to understand, like what drives him, what makes him unique in a world of cynical technology people sometimes who just want to focus on what will help them raise the next round or cash out. George is always optimizing for something else. Sometimes I think it's just for entertainment value, but a lot of times it's not, not quite ideology. It's his view of the world is very unique and, 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 and he expresses his view of the world through the work that he does. So let's go through his history. He's born in 1989, same age as me, grows up in New Jersey and writes his first computer program at age five on his dad's Apple II. And by fifth grade, he's building his own video game console with an electronics kit that he got from Radio Shack. And he's just like a very impressive hacker from a very early age. So in 2004, he becomes a finalist at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair. And he creates this robot that's really impressive. There's footage of it because he was featured on the Today Show and he got a Larry King interview out of it where he built this robot that could go and use camera sensors and take in and map an area and he put it in the air ducts of his school and mapped out all the air ducts and Katie Couric is interviewing him and saying, oh, this is really fascinating. Like, what could this be used for? And she's expecting him to say some trite humanitarian issue, but he immediately jumps to like, the military could use this to put the robot in a building that they're about to break down the door of and raid. And he's just like, maybe trolling her. Maybe he believes that's just the best application. And you'll see a lot of these robots, they wind up getting used in the military before they become consumer technology. 
And obviously the mapping stuff that ties to the, the work that he does in self-driving cars later. But in, in high school, he's hacking on so many different projects. There's just a whole list of them here. He builds this kind of segue, but you control it with your brainwaves. I have no idea how real that was, but it certainly made him kind of an icon on campus as he rode around on this hacked together segue. And then in 2005, he's a finalist at another hacking con another hacking competition. He builds this 3D imaging project called I Want a Holodeck, and he wins something like $15,000, $20,000 in, in a scholarship. And this is a theme in his life is just hacking a crazy thing, getting a little check, and then moving on to the next thing. So in 2007, he's 17 years old, and he becomes the first person reported to unlock an iPhone. Now, when the iPhone was first released, it was only for AT&T, and George Hotz had T-Mobile, and he wanted to use an iPhone because it was the coolest new gadget, so he figured out how to hack it, and I'll read you this quote from how he actually did it because it's really fascinating. He used a Phillips head eyeglass screwdriver to undo the two screws in the back of the phone. Then he slid a guitar pick around the tiny groove and twisted free the shell with a snap. Eventually, he found his target, the square sliver of black plastic called a baseband processor, the chip that limited the carriers with which it could work. To get, to the, base, to get the baseband to listen to him, to get the baseband to listen to him, he had to overwrite the commands it was getting from another part of the phone. He soldered a wire to the chip, held some voltage on it, and scrambled its code. The iPhone was now at his command. On his PC, he wrote a program that enabled the iPhone to work on any wireless carrier. The next morning, Hotz stood in his parents' kitchen and hit record on a video camera set up to face him. He had unruly curls and a wispy chin stubble and spoke with a Jersey accent. Hi, everyone. I'm GeoHot, he said, referring to his online handle, then whisked an iPhone from his pocket and says, this is the world's first unlocked iPhone. And that video, this is 2007, YouTube was tiny, but that video got 2 million views, which is just insane. And basically he becomes the most famous hacker in the world overnight. And so to, again, to capitalize on this, get a little cash in his pocket, he auctions off this unlocked iPhone. And the guy who buys it is the CEO of a cell phone refurbishing company who had probably done pretty well. And, but instead of just paying him cash, this CEO pays him with a, a sports car, a Nissan 350Z, and he gives him three new iPhones. So, so George is able to like cash in this weird way. And the craziest part is that Steve Jobs actually was forced to comment on the incident. And he papers around it and dances around it, doesn't quite acknowledge Hots, but he says, this is a constant cat and mouse game that we play. People will try and break in, and it's our job to keep them from breaking in. And everyone was hoping that Jobs and Hots would get to talk, but that never happened. But Steve Wozniak, who was obviously Steve Jobs' co-founder, sent George Hotz this congratulatory email. And Woz says at the time, it was like a story out of a movie of someone who solves an incredible mystery. I understand the mindset of a person who wants to do that, and I don't think of people like that as criminals. In fact, I think that misbehavior is very strongly correlated with and responsible for creative thought. You got to remember, Wozniak got his start as a hacker. He was a phone freak and he figured out how to make free phone calls. And way back in the day, this was like the 70s, Wozniak was making all these free phone calls because phone calls were very expensive back then. And he calls the Vatican and Wozniak is pretending to be Henry Kissinger and he actually gets a bishop on the line. And I'm sure Wozniak sees George Hotz as a continuation of the good old days of when he was hacking phones. And George Hotz is gaining a reputation as one of these great hackers. He gets 
Jets on this list, which I think is really funny because everyone talks about the Forbes 30 under 30. In 2008, Hots gets on the PC World list of top 10 overachievers under 21, which is like way more impressive than Forbes 30 under 30. And so I love that he has that designation under his belt. And so after, after high school, Hots goes to the Rochester Institute of Technology, but he drops out after just a couple months and he wants to go intern at Google. And shortly after, he, this guy's not built for the corporate world. And this is something that we'll see again and again, as soon as he goes into a big organization, he's out of there in uh, not too long. And I think that's just like his mentality. So in 2009, he releases an iOS jailbreaking tool. And this is different than unlocking. So carrier unlock means when you can use your iPhone with a different network. So you bought an AT&T iPhone, but you can use it with Verizon now or T-Mobile. Jailbreaking means you can actually run any software you want. There's not a huge use for that these days because there's so many great apps in the App Store. But before the App Store and in the early days, you couldn't get everything approved. It was very hard. So if you jailbroke your phone, you could load anything on there. Of course, a lot of that software would run really slowly, but it was really cool. And if you ever saw an old iPhone around this time, it was jailbroken, it would always have a custom skin or it'd look very different. It was mostly for fun, but obviously a very risky thing to do given how aggressive some of these companies can be. And we'll see that in a second. So in 2010, He's known as the iPhone hacker. He's unlocked it and he's jailbroken it. And he is now looking for kind of the Mount Everest of hacking attempts. And the PlayStation 3 had come out and it had this really incredible cell processor. They really over-engineered that thing. It was very fast, but it was incredibly locked down, of course, because if you break it open, you can start playing hacked games. It's very problematic for Sony's business model. The PlayStation 3 was really expensive to manufacture and they were doing a razor and blade model where they'd sell you the PlayStation 3 at or below cost and then they'd recoup it on all the video games which were essentially zero marginal cost to produce. You know, you buy the PS3 for 600 bucks or a couple hundred bucks and then that maybe costs Sony hundreds of dollars to produce but then you're buying a plastic disc to play the latest game. It costs them a dollar to make that and you paid 60 bucks for it. Really disruptive to the business model. Of course, Hots doesn't really care and he releases the exploit to the public in January. And then in December, he posts this private key to the PlayStation 3 that will let anyone hack it on his website. And uh, I'll, I'll read you a little bit of, about how he actually hacked into the PlayStation 3 because I think it's really interesting. So Hots focused on the hypervisor, powerful software, which is powerful software that controls what programs run on the machine. To reach the hypervisor, he had to get past two chips called the cell and the cell memory. He knew how he was going to scramble them by connecting a wire to the memory and shooting it with pulses of voltage, just as he had when he hacked his iPhone. His parents often gave him gifts that were useful for his hobby. After he unlocked the iPhone, they bought him a more expensive one. For Christmas in 2009, they gave him a $350 soldering iron. Sitting on the floor of his room, Hotz twisted off the screws of the black PS3 and slid off the casing. After pressing the iron to the wire, he began pulsing the chips. Next, he had to write an elaborate command that would allow him to take over the machine. Hotz spent long nights writing drafts of the program on his PC and trying them out on the hypervisor. The hypervisor was giving me shit, he recalls. It, it, it kept throwing up an error message, the number five, telling Hotz that he was unauthorized. He knew that if he got through, he'd see a zero instead. Finally, after several weeks typing at his computer, Hotz had composed a string of code 500 lines long. 
He ran it on the PS3 and nervously watched the monitor. The machine displayed a sublime single digit, zero. Hotz called the code his Finnegan's Wake, which is, of course, a reference to the James Joyce novel, which is very impenetrable, but obviously Hotz was a fan. When he jailbreaks the PS3 and allows you to run arbitrary software on it, he actually gets some backlash from the community because Sony immediately issues an update to the PS3 to block loading of other operating systems. And people had already been hacking on the PS3 and they really enjoy it and they really enjoyed that. And Hots brought so much attention to it that the community was really upset and they actually doxed him, which is pretty crazy. But things were about to get really crazy. <laughs> and we'll go into this in a second. So Sony gets really pissed at, at George and they file a lawsuit. And while this lawsuit's ongoing, he had already planned to go vacation in South America and because it was spring break. And of course, so he goes to South America, he starts posting photos and the media makes it sound like he's fleeing the country. And so that only adds to the mystique of this hacker that's doing battle with Sony, even though he's doing battle mostly with Sony entertainment in America, it sounds like this international intrigue that he's traveling all over the world. And so he posts this blog post saying, no, I haven't fled the country. My lawyers are still dealing with this stupid lawsuit. But at the end of the blog post, he sneaks in like a very snide comment and says, I hear it's hard to come by this Xperia Play down here, which was like an old Sony gaming phone that was clearly something he didn't have a lot of respect for. So he's just, even while he's in this lawsuit and working with them to get through this and probably doesn't want to piss anyone off, he's still like making fun of them. And so a lot of the hacker collectives and groups that are in favor of kind of internet freedom and doing whatever you want with your computer come out in support of HOTS. So the Electronic Frontier Foundation, they come out and support HOTS and they say that the Sony versus HOTS case sent a dangerous message that Sony has rights in the computer it sells you even after you buy it and therefore can decide whether your tinkering with that computer is legal or not. We disagree. Once you buy a computer, it's yours. And this is going to be a theme in the self-driving car that he builds and in the computers that he's building now. And just a general, in general, his philosophy is when you have a computer, it's yours to do what you want with. And I, I think a lot of people agree with that. I certainly do. And as if the trip to South America wasn't enough controversy, he releases a diss track. He's rapping on this song. And the funniest thing is that it, it is a hilarious song because he's dissing Sony, but it's actually pretty good. It, it actually sounds like a professionally recorded rap song, which is fascinating. And in there, he has a bunch of really funny lines. He says, I don't know Jack. And of course, that's like a play on words. Jack, I don't know Jack shit. But then also Jack was the president and CEO of Sony Computer Entertainment of America at the time, like the guy who was suing him. And of course, I can't imagine what it would be like to be this like 40, 50 year old corporate CEO and watch this hacker kid write a rap song about you. And then he has this other line, like, I shed a tear every time I think of Leak Sang, uh, which is another company that was sued out of business for selling mods and imported games. And so he's really rallying the whole community around his cause and creating like the Streisand effect where Sony's trying to silence him. But of course, that's only drawing more attention on the internet. And it actually spirals out of control. So this whole movement to support George Hotz against Sony gets really popular and the hacker collective anonymous starts backing him and going after Sony. So they, Hotz just wants to play with the PlayStation and, and hack the system and just have fun within the confines of what he's actually bought. So he owns the PlayStation. He wants to be able to do whatever he wants with it. 
But Anonymous is a lot more aggressive. So they start DDoSing systems and creating networks of computers that are attacking Sony.com and PlayStation.com. And they actually wind up bringing the, the, those websites down. And so now there's actually like a financial cost to Sony of this. And Hotz commented, and he that kind of wasn't on, he w didn't want it to get this far. So he says, I'm the complete opposite of anonymous. He told, he told a reporter at the time, I'm George Hotz. Everything I do is above board. Everything I do is legit. <laughs> and I just love, he's so confident, but it's right. He understands where the line is and he doesn't really cross it. And he definitely has moral authority and questionable legal authority to do what he wants. It's more of like a terms of service violation than an actual, than an actual crime. Whereas if you're bringing down someone's business website, that clearly has a financial impact and it's going to get worse. So we'll go into this in a second. So Hotz eventually settles out of court in April of 2011. And he, I'm not sure if he has to pay anything, but he basically signs an agreement that he will never again hack any Sony products. And to this day, he still says, don't buy Sony products because he doesn't like them and they made his life miserable. But Anonymous, the hacking group, they keep going. They don't care that Hots is settled. And at this point, it's become a meme. Everyone just hates Sony. And so they hack into the PlayStation network. They go a layer deeper. Instead of just bringing down the, the front-facing website, they actually hack into the database and into the servers that Sony is running. And they steal mailing addresses, passwords, birthdays, email addresses for 77 million people that are subscribed to the PlayStation Network where they can buy games. And it's one of the biggest data breaches of all time. And at this point, Hots is pissed because this is very serious economic consequences for Sony. And it's being pegged on, pinned on him, even though he didn't, he wasn't involved in this. He wasn't part of Anonymous and he wasn't really telling them to do this. It's just become a meme. And so he uploads this rant and he says, running homebrew, which is like software that you run on yourself, uh, on your own computers and exploring security on your devices is cool. Hacking into someone else's server and stealing databases of user info is not cool. You make the hacking community look bad, even if it's aimed at douches like Sony, which is hilarious because he doesn't, he's not out there saying, oh, Sony's so amazing, like pity them. <laughs> he still clearly doesn't like them, but he understands where the line is and he's trying to be a leader in the hacking community. And so the eventually Anonymous kind of backs down and Sony moves on and Hotz is looking for like the next thing to do. And of course he's built up this really big reputation as like a great programmer, great, great hacker. And so he gets a call from Facebook and he goes to work at Facebook in 2012. And a lot of people criticize him in the hacking community. They, like Facebook is this big corporation, this big monolith. And there's this perception that Facebook's not open source. Facebook does not represent like the hacker mindset. Why is this hacker going to Facebook? But it seems like Hotz just like really wanted to work at this really cool growing company at the time. And he's in, he's now said he's looked at a lot of big company code bases and Facebook just had the best one of all time. And it was just an incredible community of software engineers. And it was a really impressive place to work. But he quits after eight months because, of course, he is not built for this. And he said, Facebook is a fun place to work, but I wonder how people stay employed for so long. <laughs> so he's just, and at most startups, you have a four-year vesting schedule with a one-year cliff. So if you don't stay past a year, you get no equity. And I have no idea if he had a big equity grant. But 2012, Facebook was really small. It was maybe even pre-IPO and huge financial consequences potentially for quitting so soon. But it doesn't matter to him. Like, he just doesn't... It, it doesn't, it really feels like he's not motivated by money. And, and this is something that we'll see throughout this story. 
And so uh, after he quits Facebook, he actually gets a call back from Sony, which is interesting. And he's worried. He thinks, okay, we settled this lawsuit. Are you going to pull me in here? And there's going to be a bunch of lawyers and you're going to try and drag something up and make my life miserable. But they've Sony had actually turned it around. And when he walks into the meeting, he's like probably the most casual person in the building, but it's mostly just PS3 engineers who are working on the software and security and they want to meet him and learn and talk about security. And he's gained their begrudging respect at this point. And it's a nice full circle to the story, even though to this day, he says, don't buy Sony products. <laughs> but, so they didn't win him over fully. But after leaving Facebook, he's He's bouncing around, doing hacking competitions. He gets into competitive programming. He's recording more, more rap music on his SoundCloud, just having fun. And one really funny story from this time is that he launches this app called Reactions for the iPhone. And he says, the stated purpose is to go beyond the 1,000 words told in a photograph to tell the full story of 2,000 words. And what the app did was that it took a photo with your front-facing camera while also taking a photo with the rear-facing camera. And if you've used B-Real, this will be very familiar. So he basically invented B-Real like 10 years before that app blew up and became this huge huge like social meme. And he even had some of the same like ephemeral kind of functionality where after you took the picture, it would auto post to Facebook unless you pressed a cancel button within three seconds. So it was very much about just like living in the moment, posting both what you're seeing and your reaction to it. And you could totally see 2013, you could totally see someone take this and raise money. And I think there was actually another company around this time called Frontback that raised money for a very similar app that took a photo of the front and the back of your camera. And these were all like precursors to be real, but they never really rode the VC hype wave to get really big. And there's this question that's kicking around in a lot of people's minds now about these like short-lived apps and how should we engage with them? I heard one person refer to them as social metronomes, like HQ Trivia, Wordle, Be Real. There's, there, there are these things that come up on a random cadence once a day. They're not apps that are designed to take over your life like an Instagram or a Twitter or a YouTube where you're just spending hours and hours on them. And the name of the game for that app developer is just to maximize time. The whole goal is, hey, it's just like a fun thing that you do in the morning, you do your Wordle with a couple friends or HQ Trivia, it happens at 5 p.m. And so maybe these apps shouldn't raise money. And th there's a question about how big these ephemeral apps can be and how hard it is now, especially with the big tech companies like Facebook, like copying the good functionality very quickly and cutting off your growth earlier and earlier. This is what happened with Snapchat, where they grew really quickly. But then as soon as Facebook cloned stories into Instagram, the, they, they cut off the growth. And if that happens earlier and earlier, you don't really have the, the functionality. But these things are really cool. And maybe they should just be fun projects that you put out on the internet and, and you don't have this world domination mindset behind them. And, and it seems like that's what George Hotz was thinking of when he built this Reactions app. Like he just put it out there and it was fun and had some fun with it and moves on. And so what he moved on to was going back to hacking the roots. And so he goes to this Google hacking competition and he wins $150,000 for, for hacking, finding an exploit in the Chrome operating system, which Google of course was developing at the time. And it was a really tricky thing. It's like unlocking a lock where there's multiple tumblers and you need to line up everything perfectly. So he lines up these four different security holes and is able to get root access to the Chrome operating system, which is run on Linux, which is obviously secure. And then Chrome OS is also secure. So th these, both of these, like the system should be very secure, but 
Hotz is still able to hack it and he wins this money. And he also found a software hack in the Samsung Galaxy S5 device. And eventually he gets the, the attention of Google. And so they hire him to work on this Project Zero team. And the Project Zero team is supposed to be like the special operations, like this Navy SEALs of programmers, like the best hackers that Google is sending around to secure their systems, really push the envelope in terms of finding exploits and then surfacing them before the bad guys can. There's this dichotomy between like white hat hackers and black hat hackers. The black hat hackers are the ones who are trying to get into the system and steal data and steal information. And the white hat hackers are often working for the companies trying to secure the systems before the black hat hackers can. And the really funny thing is that even though at this point in 2014, he's the age of someone who would have graduated from college. He has a lot of experience. He comes on, I think, as an intern. And someone at the time said, hiring George Hotz as an intern is like the Daily Planet hiring Superman to be a reporter. And I thought that was so funny because, and you'll see it even later, he goes to work for Twitter and his title is intern again, because he really just, he's not there to climb the corporate ranks. He's not jostling for titles or power. He just wants to get into a really big system and get around, explore, learn, find some cool stuff. He's just trying to solve a puzzle. And of course, like the Google code base is just a big puzzle to him. So he's, he's having fun with that, but he only lasts a couple months, it seems, maybe a year. And then in 2015, he goes to work for this company, Vicarious, which was a super hyped robotics AI company. They raised $250 million from like Mark Zuckerberg, Jeff Bezos, a bunch of other people. And it looked like this was going to be like a really amazing AI company. It seemed like they took the wrong path. I think that where there was one, the deep learning cr crowd was just like throw more and more data and more and more compute at it. Vicarious was a little bit more, we're going to try and learn from biology and create the human brain in silicon and try and learn from humans and then port that over to AI. But it doesn't really seem like it worked out really well because the press has faded around the company and they were acquired by Google's intrinsic division, which is like a small sub-owned company uh, last year in 2022. So he only works there again, typical George Hotz. He's there from January to July. <laughs> and then in September, he starts his first company, Comma AI. And this is like the first proper startup that he does. The, the B-Real thing, it seemed like it was just for fun and the hacking projects were just for competitions. But this is really, the goal is to develop self-driving technology. And there's a really fascinating story from around this time. He goes to meet with Elon Musk at Tesla. And at the time, Tesla was using Mobileye, which was, uh, it still is an Israeli company that was building self-driving technology, mostly lane keep assist, where the car stays in the lane. And if you are driving over the lane markers, it'll put you back in the lane and adaptive cruise control. So it uses radar and a couple other sensors to look at the car in front of you and adjust your speed. And when you have a mobile system, like it's pretty nice. And you'll see this on a lot of on a lot of modern cars. But Elon says, I'm sick of working with Mobileye. I want to bring this in house. I want you to build a replacement for Mobileye. And I want you to come on and do it. And the structure of their potential contract, it never actually comes through, but is like one of the funniest things I've ever heard. So Elon says, I will pay you $12 million to deliver a system that can beat Mobileye, that I can use at Tesla. But every month it takes you to do it, I will give you one less million dollars. So it takes you, if you can deliver today, you get $12 million. If it takes you six months, you get $6 million. If it takes you 12 months, you get nothing. And so it's just, it's such a wild, even proposal.
just to say, but it actually aligns the incentives perfectly because it gives them a huge incentive to build something quickly and there's massive upside and Elon would get the system that you want very quickly, but it falls through unclear, you know, why that was, but again, pretty typical, not really cut out to work in a large organization. So George focuses on his startup, comma AI. And the goal with comma is to build a self-driving self-driving car technology, but instead of building the whole car like Tesla's doing, he wants to just build basically a plug-in, like a widget that you can stick on your windshield, and then that will take over the control of your car. So on, on most modern cars, even back like 10, 20 years ago, they started adding these things called OBD ports. And this is basically like a USB port for your car. So it allows data to flow back and forth and you can actually control the car via the OBD port. So you can turn the steering wheel and you can apply the gas and the brake all through software. And so this system that he's working on, he realizes that the OBD port is a really big opportunity because it'll allow his software to integrate with basically any car because the, these ports are on basically every modern car. And so he raises some money from Andreessen Horowitz and I think a few other VCs and he starts building. And of course, George Hotz is always just the most confident person ever. He told me that he never speaks it, no matter what, no matter how confident he is about a specific topic, he always speaks with the exact same level of confidence. So even if he thinks something's like a 50-50 in his mind, he'll always speak just completely confidently. And it makes for really good content. And you can see why he's been on Lex like for nine hours because he's just like a quote machine and can just like, just have so much fun when he's talking to people because he kind of answers to no one. He doesn't have a comms department. He doesn't work for a big company. Investors don't really control his company. He's not really getting a lot of angry phone calls so he can just have fun. And so when he's building this company, he's so confident that he's gonna solve self-driving. He makes t-shirts that says, we are going to be so rich. <laughs> and I remember somebody telling me he went to some of the self-driving car conference and saw George Hotz and everyone was like introducing themselves and saying like what they do. And George just stands up and says, I'm George Hotz, I'm building Kama AI and we're gonna win self-driving. <laughs> like, we're gonna kill you all. Just like supremely confident, which is awesome and entertaining and it's, and it's harmless and fun. And so it's going when he's actually getting the software to work pretty well. And he's created this very interesting feedback loop where the Kama device is basically just a phone that he's modified. Eventually he builds more of a custom device, but it's basically a cell phone, like an Android phone that you you stick to your dashboard where the where the rear view mirror is. And then it can use a camera to look out at the road ahead of you. And then it can send signals over that OBD port via basically a USB connection to control the car. But what's really interesting is that the device is actually recording all of this data about what's happening in the car, like where you're steering, whether you're accelerating or braking and what's going on in the images. And then that it's actually uploading that to Kama's system. So then they can use that to train the model. And that's really a big part of the name of the game with self-driving cars. That's why you see all of those Google cars just driving around constantly because they're trying to accumulate data. And this is one of the reasons that people are so bullish on Tesla is because they have so many Teslas on the road. I think the Model Y is like the number one selling car in America right now. And the reason people are bullish on the self-driving thing is that even if the self-driving tech doesn't seem like quite as good as anything else, or there's some struggles, it's like they've created this flywheel where they're just accumulating so much data. And so HOTS kind of bootstraps that with the, the Android of self-driving that you can just put on any car, but you're still uploading the data to comma servers, and then he's using that to train the model. And everything's going pretty well, but then he receives a cease and desist letter from the California DMV after he tests a uh, self-driving Acura ILX. And and in October, he has to cancel the product, the comma one, 
after receiving a letter from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA. And so this is a big setback, and obviously it's in line with everything that we've seen about HOTS, where he believes that you should be able to do whatever you want with the tech that you own. So if you own the car and you bought the Kama product, you should be able to slap it on there. But of course, with cars, you, if something goes wrong, you can kill a pedestrian or run in or d damage properties. So that's why we have regulations in place, even though I don't think he's a fan of these. But this lawsuit and this warning from the government, it really puts a damper on kind of the the, the Silicon Valley energy behind the company. There were a lot of self-driving car companies that were really hot at the time and were just raising insane amounts of money and they weren't making as much technical progress as what he was doing, but they were all super buttoned up on the regulatory and they weren't shipping anything. And there were some companies that sold for like a billion dollars before even like putting a car on the road. And all of that was just because they had a squeaky clean reputation with the government. And that's a benefit to venture capitalists and that's a benefit to big car manufacturers that might wanna buy a company. But Hotz doesn't care about that. He's doing it just for the fun. He's doing it because he wants to solve self-driving and he finds that as like an interesting problem. So what he does is he open sources his self-driving car software, OpenPilot, which he'd been building. And he basically finds all these weird loopholes where you can buy the Kama product, which is like that phone that you stick to your windshield. You can buy that from him and then you independently have to load the software and then that's you doing that so he doesn't have the liability. And it's, it's just a crazy workaround, but it works and the company's growing. But obviously that puts a huge damper on kind of the commercial aspects because your average consumer doesn't want to have to download an open source repo from GitHub and connect this device to their computer and load the software on, that's all going to be really difficult. People want just a one-click thing where they just click it in, or even the idea would be like dealer installed. That's something that happens a lot at, at dealerships. When you buy a car, sometimes like you'll see like roof racks or like maybe there's like you're buying an off-roading vehicle and there's like a tent that goes on top and that's like a dealer option, meaning like the dealership is the one that like procured that and then installs that. And it doesn't come from the factory. It doesn't come from BMW or Mercedes. It's something that the dealer has chosen to add on. And usually those are really high margin and questionable if they're good, but being able to sell these through dealerships would have been great. But there was just no way that this was going to get approved as fast as they wanted to. He bounces around it at at Kama for a while. He becomes the head of the research team and brings in a CEO. And he's really focused on the value of this Android approach but it is a little niche. At this point, Cruise Automation, a self-driving car company, had sold to GM for I think a billion dollars, maybe more, but GM was only rolling it out on like the premium models of Cadillacs. So it would cost you like $80,000 to get something that was at all equivalent. Whereas with Kama, the Android approach, you could buy the Kama device for a thousand bucks and put it on a $20,000 Honda Civic. And people were doing this. And there's a bunch of videos on YouTube of people taking their commas out. Of course, all these people are hackers. They all know how to install open source software and they're all very like risk tolerant. But it's remarkable that there haven't been any major crashes or major news stories about how dangerous the system is. And from everything I've seen, like the product actually works really well, just as good as anything that's released by the auto, the big auto manufacturers. So in 2018, this is a time of huge hype in self-driving cars. All the major auto manufacturers are saying that they're going to remove the steering wheels from their cars in three years, five years. I think the Ford CEO said something crazy about no steering wheels in any Ford cars in 2023 or something like that. Really aggressive because it was great for the stock. It was great for the hype. It helped hire engineers, all these things, but it just wasn't technically feasible. And we've seen self-driving 
letting play out now and it's taking a lot longer than we thought. Even for Tesla, they're still not fully approved to just ter- just sleep in the backseat while your Tesla drives you around. That just doesn't exist yet. So there's five self-driving levels that we should talk about. Level one is basically just cruise control. Everyone has that in their car, no matter, even if it's 20 years old. Then there's level two, which is that mobile eye lane keep assist adaptive cruise control, keeps you in the lane, keeps you from running into someone else if you're cruising on the highway, but it doesn't really change lanes for you. It doesn't really, it doesn't work on streets. It won't stop for stop signs, anything like that. That's level two. Then level three is the same features, but the the main difference is that the car company is now liable and Mercedes actually just got recently approved for this. Tesla actually doesn't have approval for this, surprisingly, even though their tech is really good. And so with level three, you can actually watch like a YouTube video or movie on the infotainment screen and you don't, and you need to be available to take over, but the car will drive itself and it'll, it'll, it needs to be able to ask you to take over. So it's a little bit, it's certainly nicer as a driving experience, um, but it's not, it's not fully sleeping in the backseat. That's what happens at level four and level five. Level four, you, you don't really need the human in the car at all, I believe. And then level five, I don't think there's a steering wheel in the car at all. And that's what Cruz and Waymo are working on right now. And so he has this theory on self-driving that basically the major car manufacturers and the major companies that are working on self-driving, they are willing to do whatever it takes to get the tech to work. And they have huge resources. So they're doing crazy things, driving all these cars around and mapping every single road. And when you bought one of those GM Super Cruise um, self-driving cars or the self-driving system, um, it was only it would only engage when it was on a mapped road that GM had actually, and the cruise team had actually gone and mapped with LIDAR and they had like very precision 3D maps. And so it wasn't really a generalizable system. And there were these jokes about how at Waymo, they had a guy who his whole job was just to work on traffic cones and understand how to integrate that into the system. And George Hotz, like he thinks about this very differently. He basically says that, how does a human drive? A human has, few senses, two eyes, 3D vision, sound, can hear things around them, can touch the steering wheel, feel the torque. And other than that's it when you're driving. And then they just have the basic inputs, the steering wheel and the gas and the brake. And so he thinks that ultimately everything is going to be end-to-end machine learning, meaning that it's an AI system that's trained on the images and the inputs that go into the system. And then ultimately the algorithm will spit out what to do with the car, like the actual inputs to the steering wheel and the and the gas and brake and the accelerator. And that's not really how most self-driving cars work now. They use a lot of machine learning to process the images and they use a lot of machine learning to understand what's going on around them. But then after they've mapped the environment, they use more traditional software engineering approaches, like they basically write C++ to navigate the environment and actually create like the optimal path and, and actually apply the accelerator. Now, everyone wants to move to machine learning, but they know that, okay, maybe there's a more incremental stage. Like HOTS is all in on going end to end as as soon as possible. And that's why he's so obsessed with hoovering up as much data as possible, because he wants to really solve self-driving in the way it will be clearly solved in in, in like years when it's actually fully solved. And so he's obsessed with this, but it's 
clear that Kama's doing well, but it's not a breakout. And of course, he's interested in a million other things. And so he's doing well. He launches the Kama 2 at CES in 2020. But then, of course, like he goes off and does a bunch of other stuff in February 2020. In February of 2020, he founds the cheap ETH cryptocurrency, which is a fork of the Ethereum blockchain that has a bigger block size. Transactions should be cheaper, but it's more vulnerable. And he's just obsessed with optimizing systems and doing these like interesting, unique hacking projects. But a criticism that he often faces is like, he goes into this, this world, this system, and he's really excited about it. And then he like pivots out of it before he can really make a huge impact. So with a cheap ETH project, somebody like an intern at Polychain Capital winds up being able to hack the, the system and do a 51% attack for just $100 because there were obviously like some vulnerabilities. But it was more of a thought experiment than anything else. He wasn't really trying to become a cryptocurrency entrepreneur or something like that. He just wanted to push what was possible and, and explore the system, really learn how the tech works. And in 2022, he gets sued at Kama. And again, typical story, he always uh, like never amazing at playing the regulatory game, keeping the big corporations happy. He gets sued by a patent troll at one point. And in October, he announces he's taking a break for Kama AI. And then in November, he founds a new company called Tiny Corp. And, and then he also announces that he's doing a 12-week internship with Twitter once Elon takes over, but he resigned after less than five weeks, which is, again, he said he went in and the code base was a mess and he couldn't get anything done. And obviously it's a big, even though Elon was changing everything there and really trying to like clean house, it was still too much corporate nonsense for him, I think. So he starts building Tiny Corp and his whole mission here is to disrupt NVIDIA, really. It's a really big vision, but he's taking a very interesting approach. So obviously NVIDIA has been on an absolute tear with the AI kind of boom. Uh, I think stock tripled in the last few, like maybe six months. And George thinks that it's not acceptable that NVIDIA controls, it has like a monopoly on the hardware that is used to train AI models. And he also thinks that th there's a bunch of problems with NVIDIA, of course. He thinks there's problems with pretty much every big software system that he interacts with. But his model is to flip things around. So there have been other startups that have tried to build new GPUs to compete with NVIDIA. But they've all those projects have dragged on and they've never really made a dent. They plan out the chips, they tape them out, but then it takes a really long time to get them into production. And then even after they get into production, they get hit in this with this problem, which is that the software to actually run your code on these new chips doesn't exist. Like all of the main machine learning libraries that are used to train things like GPT-3 and Llama and all of these different projects from Google and Facebook, they all use PyTorch or use a little bit less now. Everyone's using PyTorch these days. And those are very much optimized for NVIDIA and their CUDA programming language. And so NVIDIA has like a really strong monopoly because everyone writes code that's optimized for CUDA and their chips are the only ones that run CUDA. And so he flips it around and wants to write software that will allow machine learning training, like AI training runs to, to happen on non-NVIDIA GPUs. So Intel makes GPUs and AMD also makes GPUs and Qualcomm also makes GPUs. And I think there's a, a couple others. And if you look at those GPUs, they're actually pretty efficient from a cost per 
computer calculation, essentially, like a dollar per flop. And But the problem is that the software just doesn't exist. The software sucks, and so no one's writing software for those. And so he wants to find the ideal GPU that's not NVIDIA. He's explored Intel and AMD, and then write a really great software library that can replace TensorFlow or PyTorch, be a lot more efficient, and then basically give you NVIDIA-level performance for much lower cost. And in the long term, he has this kind of ideological view that right now, all of these AI models, they're often behind API walls or they're controlled by companies or you need a huge compute cluster or access to the really top tier NVIDIA hardware that's really hard to get your hands on or maybe you can't even run it at home. He wants everyone to be able to run AI systems at home without anyone else's permission. And so his dream is to build something called a tiny box, which you know, has enough compute to run one of these really big large language models or AI systems. So instead of GPT-3 or GPT-4 in the cloud that you access through the web browser, you'd be able to have something running locally in your house that's your AI assistant. And wherever the technology goes and whatever the applications are, you'll be able to run those permissionlessly in your house. And that requires building new software and then also building these computers. And it's, it's a perfect circle because if you remember at the beginning, we were talking about how George went around and sold custom computers in high school and in middle school, and now he's trying to sell these custom computers uh, to the world. So I, 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 love the, I love the circularity there. So he's raised some money for it, and he's building this company. But I think it'd be good to end with his thoughts on some philosophical things, because I think he thinks very deeply about this stuff and has been around the tech community bumping up against these, these bigger discussions for a long time. And he posted a few links that really informed his worldview. One of them was dropping out, which is all about dropping out of society. Like, how do you actually get off the grid? How do you live your life if you're not working a job and you don't have steady resources? And the post is very interesting. It goes into all these different things that you need to do to live your life fully off the grid out of the normal world. Obviously, he hasn't done that. He's very much in the world, raising money and building a, building a company. But I think he, it very much informed his his experience and the fact that he never stays at a single company for more than a year, it seems like that's clearly informed by this desire to be just completely ruggedly independent. And then he's also thought really deeply about the singularity and where artificial intelligence goes over the very long term. One of the one of the articles that he posted was this very old blog post by Eliezer Yudikowsky, who is now famous for being very fearful about AI and he's known as an AI doomer. But the blog post that George Hotz references is one from earlier in Yudikowsky's career where he was very excited about the singularity and wanted to accelerate it. And I think that while Yudikowsky has drifted away from that original blog post and he's actually taken down the post and you need to access it via the Wayback Machine, George Hotz still thinks we need to accelerate, which is uh, very interesting. He is worried about artificial intelligence and the problems that could arise with authoritarian control or AI killing people. Like he doesn't dismiss that, but he has a solution for it that I'm fairly convinced makes sense. So basically he's worried that a single super intelligent AI would put humanity at risk and start enabling like really negative authoritarian control over humans. So if you have one person maybe that controls 
some superpower AI, they can control the whole world. But if you are able to create multiple of these AIs, then they kind of battle with each other and compete with each other and create a stalemate. And so even if someone has an AI that, that's sent out to attack you, you can deploy your relatively equivalent AI to defend you. And typically it's easier to, to defend yourself than to attack someone. And so that's a big reason why he's building this tiny box thing. Like he wants everyone to have powerful AI and he wants to put it in the hands of individuals so that corporations don't have complete control or governments don't have complete control or even a single individual doesn't have complete control. And it's interesting because these ideological companies that are focused on delivering a product that requires thinking deeply about a long-term problem, it's really hard to get them to work financially. It's very unclear if there will be demand for tiny boxes, like if people will actually go out and buy these, especially if they're just happy enough with what they have and what the corporations are giving them. And we see this with all sorts of products where you could store all your information on a local hard drive so that no corporation can take your data away from you, but people don't mind uploading it to the cloud. They use Dropbox and they use Google Drive for everything because historically it's been fine. So it's unclear if people will be will jump on board in mass, but regardless, it's just a very cool project and I wish him luck. So yeah, that's the story of George Hotz. Hope you enjoyed it.